Good morning, and welcome to Beyond the Headlines on CIUT 89.5 FM. I'm your host, Connor Fraser, alongside my co-producer, Thomas Chan. Beyond the Headlines is a weekly current affairs show that aims to make public policy discussions more accessible to you. We take you beyond the headlines of our daily news, bringing you access to current leaders through in-depth interviews. You can join us in the conversation by tweeting at beyond underscore headlines. That's B-Y-O-N-D underscore headlines. Characterized by trade disputes, the detention of its citizens, human rights violations, and growing diplomatic quarrels, tensions between Canada and China have reached an historic high. As both countries begin to emerge from the diplomatic conflict involving the arrest of Huawei CFO Meng Wanzhou by Canada at the request of the United States, and the subsequent detainment of Michael Kovrig and Michael Spavor by China for over a thousand days, and what the Canadian government deemed hostage diplomacy, many are wondering where this bilateral relationship will go next. An October 2021 Nanos poll conducted after the release of the two Michaels found that Canadians were over three times more likely to say that relations between the Canadian government and the Chinese government should be unfriendly rather than friendly. Despite this, trade between Canada and China continues to grow. Amidst this backdrop, we sit down with two renowned experts on the matter, Professor Paul Evans at the University of British Columbia and Professor Gordon Holden of the China Institute at the University of Alberta to discuss the past, present, and future of Canada-China relations. How have generations of political leaders and bureaucrats shaped Canada's relationship with China? What strategies were used? And importantly, how have recent events altered Canada's approach to China and is a new strategy necessary? The answers to those questions and more, coming up. For our first segment, we are joined by Professor Paul Evans from the University of British Columbia. Professor Evans is based at the Institute of Asian Research and the Liu Institute for Global Issues within UBC, where he is the HSBC Chair in Asian Research. His recent writings and media commentaries have focused on Canada-China relations, Asian security dynamics, and the emergence of techno-nationalism as a defining force in regional affairs. Professor Evans is author of the 2014 book, Engaging China, Myth, Aspiration, and Strategy in Canadian Policy from Trudeau to Harper, as well as co-editor of the 1991 essay collection, Reluctant Adversaries, Canada and the People's Republic of China, 1949-1970. Thank you so much, Professor Evans, for joining me on the show. How are you doing today? It's an overcast day in Vancouver, but no rain, so we're smiling. Okay, that's, uh, that's awesome. So today, uh, we're here to talk about Canada, Canada's China policy, and specifically the past of Canada-China relations. So yourself and one of your colleagues, Professor Froelich of York University, are co-editors of an essay collection 
called Reluctant Adversaries, Canada and the People's Republic of China from 1949 to 1970. Can you break down that title for us? Why was the Canada-China relationship adversarial during this time and why might it be appropriate to classify Canada and China as reluctant adversaries? Well, the Canada-China relationship goes back a, a long way, essentially, and from the 1870s, when um, Chinese workers came to, uh, to be part of uh, our railroad expansion. And uh, Canadian missionaries, Christian missionaries, uh, visited China. Uh, and uh, uh, it's, a, it's a relationship that, in that sense, goes back to, to the founding of Canada. And it was a, curiously a people-to-people -people rather than a diplomatic relationship. That was the um, the bedrock, the, the founding, uh, the founding of uh, of our interactions. Um, our book uh, that Bernie Frolick and I wrote in uh, uh, put together a series of essays uh, in the mid 1980s was looking back at the period of the diplomatic relationship between Canada and China from 1949, uh, when the People's Republic of China was founded, uh, until 1970, which was the year that Canada and China established diplomatic relations. And though both of us were political scientists uh, who were interested in the contemporary period, gone on to write and work on the, the, the post-1970 period, we were really curious about the period 1949 to 1970. Canada and, and the People's Republic of China did not have diplomatic relations. Uh, we had a relationship with the Republic of China, which was essentially the forces that lost on the mainland that went to Taiwan uh, and, and claimed to be the, the government of all of China. And in that, Canada had diplomatic relations. We didn't have, a diplomat, we didn't have an ambassador uh, in Taipei, in Taiwan, but the Taiwanese, uh, the Republic of China did here in Canada. So for 21 years, we were in the interesting position of our formal relationship being with a government that had 20 million people when there were roughly a million, a billion people on the mainland we didn't have diplomatic relations with. And going back to that period, which we thought was quite formative because in 1949, when the Chinese communists uh, won the, the civil war, uh, and took power and created the People's Republic. Uh, Canada became very close to extending diplomatic recognition to that new government. And there were preliminary interactions around that. What happened was in June of 1950, the Korean War broke out. And for three years, uh, Chinese forces were supporting North Korean forces in a battle with the South and the UN uh, and, and the United Nations team led by the United States and Canada as a part of it. So we had a, a, a rough start to our relationship with the People's Republic of China being literally at war with them. But by the mid 19 and late 1950s, um, Canada, our, our diplomats, particularly um, our, um, uh, our, our, our ministers uh, in, and some of our um, some of our politicians began thinking that we better try to establish a relationship with this country, this big country, the billion people or so. And for from roughly 1957 
58 when we started wheat sales to China uh, until uh, coming of Pierre Trudeau in 1968, when Trudeau said, we're going to recognize the People's Republic of China. In between, there was a major debate in Canada about what we do with China. And in some ways, it's not dissimilar to the debate we have now about what we should be doing with China. And there were, there were two basic lines that were emerging. One was that China is a communist country. Uh, it is a threat to uh, some of our friends and allies. It is a, uh, a challenge and was major con had a major conflict with the United States. That in other words, China is a threat, uh, a country that we need to limit, contain, keep our distance from. That was one position that was very much in vogue in the 1950s at the height of the Cold War, uh, in which China and uh, Russia, the Soviet Union, were seen to a big threat. But there was always another line of analysis that even if we have deep differences with the People's Republic of China, we have to find ways to build connections with it. Diplomatic, uh, try to establish connections. And then later, uh, economically, what could we do? So those two contending positions, basically a confront China position and what I label an engagement position were already being debated before uh, 1970 when we, when we recognized. And that reluctant adversaries was that in the mind of that second group, the engagers, the, what I would call the pragmatists on this matter, uh, they, they weren't happy with framing China as an adversary. It was necessary when we were in the war, but uh, the Korean War. But their basic approach was that we need to find a way to get beyond an adversarial relationship with China, help China come into the international system, don't isolate and contain it, but engage it. Uh, and that's, that's where the word reluctant came from. The Lester Pearsons, the Paul Martin Sr., and, and ultimately the Pierre Elliott Trudeau were people who were of that view that we needed something different. And that was behind the Trudeau initiative that led to recognition in 1970. So many things I want to follow up on here. Uh, briefly, you mentioned in, in 1949, Canada was very close to extending recognition to to what became the People's Republic of China on the mainland. Was this you know, unique amongst Canada's allies? Did the United States consider doing something similar? Uh, it was uh, in, in 1949, just at the, as, the, as, the, as the communists uh, were, uh, uh, it was very clear they were winning the Civil War uh, and by October created their own country. Um, several of our allies, including France, the United Kingdom, uh, uh, India, uh, began taking steps towards recognition of the new government. France did so. Uh, <clears throat> the United Kingdom was very close to it. India was. The United States did not support that. Remember that in the, 19, uh, the, the, the late 1940s, there was an enormous debate going on inside the United States about why the, uh, the nationalists, the, uh, the, uh, the Guomindang, the party led by Chiang Kai-shek that had been opposing the communists, why the American-backed nationalists lost that war. 
Uh, and there was intense debate in the United States around what it should do. That changed instantaneously in June of 1950 when the Korean War broke out. And then the United States for the next 28 years were actively uh, opposing uh, diplomatic recognition. Uh, the US didn't recognize the People's Republic of China till 1978, but roughly from 1950 to 1970, the period we were talking about, uh, the United States opposed uh, any kinds of diplomatic contacts with mainland China, with the People's Republic, and pushed Canada not to go in the direction of <clears throat> the engagement strategy that some had in mind. Another follow-on question. Uh, let's fast forward 20 years after the Korean War ends, and by the 1970s, Canada and its allies, such as the United States, take steps to recognize mainland China's communist regime. You've alluded to this before, but what was the philosophy behind Canada and its allies accepting and recognizing a communist government, which until then had been sidelined at the United Nations? Let's, let's focus on the years 1968 to 1970. And this is where the debate that had been going on in Canada was, uh, was <laughs> and never resolved but there was a clear, uh, decisive decision. And uh, that was uh, Pierre Trudeau. And <clears throat> Trudeau, as he uh, had experiences with China trips in 1949, 1960, he was our prime minister, uh, our political leader, and then our prime minister who knew China best, who had the deepest experience. And Trudeau, uh, when, uh, in, remember in 1968, the United States is fighting a major war in Indochina uh, and particularly in Vietnam, where it was very clear that China was providing big support to the, uh, uh, to the uh, American opponents, the Viet Cong and the, uh, the North Vietnamese. And generally, America was at the height of a Cold War approach to both the Soviet Union and to China. Uh, it was an idea of containing the Soviet Union, pushing back against China. So when Trudeau comes in, he had to offer a pretty clear rationale for why it was in Canada's interests to um, uh, set up uh, a relationship with the government on the mainland. And he gave, he gave three big reasons. One of them was simply that China exists and that it was foolish to try to isolate or insulate ourselves from a country that, uh, whose government we didn't necessarily like. China was in the midst of the cultural revolution at that stage, internal upheaval, enormous excesses uh, uh, by its own government. But the argument was that it exists and that international relations can be handled most peacefully uh, and, and successfully. Uh, by trying to have everybody, all major players in the game. So diplomatic relations, Trudeau said, would be necessary to end the isolation of China. Uh, second, Trudeau said that there are economic opportunities in coming with China. Now this was communist Maoist China, not the open China of 19, after 1979, but it was already uh, a major purchaser of our wheat. And there were arguments that it could be, could be expanded further. So there was a, um, uh, an economic uh, argument 
that despite Americans who said this would be costly to us if we pursued this, uh, uh, this dangerous path from their perspective, there was at least an economic calculation. So you have a strategic calculation, an economic calculation. But there was also something in the spirit of uh, a moral calculation. And it was that even if China is an extraordinarily difficult country at this stage for us to deal with, um, even if that's the case, we, we do open doors to China step by step that not just will reduce their isolation, but that may bring some element of reform or change in China. And this has always been the deepest argument in Canadian China policy, the debate between those who feel that we must change China, push it in the direction of a liberal democracy, have it embrace universal values on human rights, versus another position, and it was Trudeau's position, that opening the door would not necessarily change China to become more like us, but that it could help processes of reform within China that would take it down its own path that um, uh, we couldn't entirely force, but that we wanted to encourage. So that was what was going on in 68, 70. The Americans didn't like it. They pushed back, but actually they didn't push back so hard. Uh, what is what we learned through the historical documents is that, remember, it's only a year later that Henry Kissinger uh, decides to, uh, and Richard Nixon, to open a door to China. You're right that it was, only, it was only after Canada had recognized China that the United States, not because of Canada, but in consonance with some of the same thinking, the Americans changed their approach. And it took them eight years to actually, seven years after the, the, the Kissinger visit and then the Nixon visit the next year. It took them six years for them to recognize the People's Republic of China, but they did so. Uh, and they did so for some of the reasons that would have been uh, uh, some similar ideas to Canada, but fundamentally they saw China as a counterweight to the Soviet Union. So there was a geopolitical angle that we didn't have. So we were somewhat ahead of the Americans, but I, uh, and, but I wanna say that they didn't desperately try to stop us from doing what the Trudeau government wanted. They expressed unhappiness, but the forces of change, the recalculation in the United States was already taking place. That's a, uh, a new insight for me uh, to, to see the differing reasons why Canada, like you said, Trudeau has these three, three points that he has behind his decision, whereas the United States are also thinking about those three points, but because they're a much bigger country, they were thinking about geopolitics as well, the counterweight to the Soviet Union. Um, and what was the mood, you know, am amongst Canada's population at the time? Were they enthusiastic about it? Was there a lot of backlash? I know that Trudeau went on to serve as Canada's prime minister for a number of years, so it must not have been taken too badly, but uh, what, what are your thoughts? It's, a, it's an interesting issue because we have some of the same divisions and roughly the same numbers uh, about uh, Canadian approaches to China now uh, in a more recent period as we did in 1968 to 1970. Uh, roughly 45% of Canadians didn't want to see Canada recognize the People's Republic of China. 
roughly the same number, did not want to see Canada support China's entry into the United Nations. So there was a significant number of people. Uh, majority supported it, and that majority was actually rising by 1970. But still, it was just a little bit over 50%. Uh, and that division in Canada, uh, the, the foundations of the engagement school versus the, uh, the confrontation school, uh, we've, had, we've had strong social basis in the country for a long time on both sides of that debate. The support for Trudeau's China work uh, was not high at the time of recognition. Now, within five years, by 1975-76, Canadian public became uh, uh, roughly 75% support for the main elements of an engagement strategy. But there was always a core of 25% uh, who were fiercely anti-communists, who pushed back against expansion of relations. But in fact, they played, they stayed very consistent from 1975 all the way through to 2018. And with the one dip during Tiananmen Square, the protests in 1989, negativity about China and Canadian connections with China spiked. But just for a fairly short period, both in elite thinking and public opinion. But generally engagement was, was so popular that it became clearly a consensus position that ran across both parties, the liberals and the conservatives. Uh, again, with a, a bit of a, of, a, of a spike of difference during the first years of Stephen Harper's government. You wrote a book uh, called Engaging China, where uh, you said that engagement has been the bedrock of Canada's policy towards China for more than four decades. Could you break down this strategy for us? What does it mean in a diplomatic sense, in terms of you know, how, how we do business with China? What, uh, what does this strategy look like? Engagement, uh, the philosophy of it goes back to Pierre Elliott Trudeau and with variations, uh, succeeding prime ministers uh, and a whole diplomatic core have backed the idea that uh, we need to expand relations with China. Uh, and some of that was trying to get China into international organizations. The first, the most important, was the United Nations, but then into a variety of other things, all the way up to the World Trade Organization. Uh, later, the G20 uh, idea was bring China to the multilateral tables uh, that, uh, that exist, the, the kind of foundational institutions in uh, what we now call a liberal world order. Uh, get China into those organizations, not because we always agreed with them or because they were going to take positions we liked, but because we felt their voice was important and could be a voice for changing domestic constituencies inside China. So engagement was, uh, was popular and consistent as a way of expanding diplomacy. It was also a way uh, engagement was premised on economic benefits. And Canada's efforts, including through an aid program to China, were intended to um, uh, assist Canadian companies to uh, build Chinese capacity in a variety of areas. And later, after China's huge economic uh, opening uh, beginning in 1979, 
as the Chinese economy grew, Canadian business wanted in. Um, Canadian organizations have wanted universities, um, friendship societies, uh, clan associations. The idea was that you, in addition to your diplomatic framework, you build the human and uh, institutional connections at the societal level. And so as it somewhere between 1980 and, uh, uh, and say our period now, every Canadian university has connections with China. Uh, they're under challenge right now, uh, but we've, we've built them. So engagement built that economic strategy. <clears throat> but the third part, that kind of moral dimension, uh, why, why are we doing this with a country whose values, institutions, history are so dramatically different than ours and where our interests don't always line up, where our systems of government don't line up with each other? Well, there was an idea that some engagers held was that opening China, assisting in these societal openings, the openings diplomatically, open China and some changes will come not just to the economy and society, but to the political system. That in other words, <clears throat> engagement was a way of, in some minds, engagement was a way of uh, encouraging and hoping for uh, political change inside China. Um, that was not all engagers. There was an, another school of engagement was, you're not going to change China. China is a Leninist authoritarian system that may change around the edges, uh, and, but that it's, uh, the, and the values behind it, its society is not going to come in our direction, but it might be nudged in certain kind of ways. So there was an engagement was premised on optimism that China would, if not change its stripes, uh, would become at least more uh, amenable and more open to values, pluralism in ways that would be of benefit to Canada, the world and the Chinese people. You mentioned that the engagement strategy was premised on optimism. Do you think that uh, the engagement strategy continues to be an appropriate strategy for Canada going forward? Or have the assumptions underlying engagement changed to the point where maybe a new strategy is necessary? Well, this is the, is the fundamental issue. The premises of engagement, all three of them that I gave, and there were variations in each, some of them pretty naive, but also some very hard-headed realism. But that that engagement strategy now looks unsustainable. What changed? One thing that changed was um, the coming to power in China of a new leader. And Xi Jinping's China uh, has become clearly more powerful than any Chinese country in, in, in 400 years. Uh, China is a major world economic power. It is a force diplomatically in international institutions. But the key was that it was not becoming more liberal uh, in the sense of uh, institutional change. China was becoming increasingly repressive at home, uh, not as bad as the Cultural Revolution period, but still significantly and moving in a direction that was negative. China was becoming assertive uh, in international institutions pushing some things 
on democracy and human rights were very, very different uh, than what uh, Canadians believed in. And uh, the Chinese were trying to push uh, around its borders. China's relationship with Xinjiang and the Uyghur uh, issue it was an example of a nationalities policy that ran really against Canadian values, institutions, and those liberal uh, order. And then what was happening in Hong Kong. So you get Chinese actions uh, that make, make the country more difficult to look at. And further, the biggest change is that you get US-China competition in a major way. For most of the period of our engagement, the Americans were either tolerant of it or actually supported it. But when Trump comes in and the US-China relationship moves in the direction of, 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 of hostility and strategic competition, all of these factors have made Canada's engagement strategy of the past difficult. Then you add on the overlay of the events with the three M's, Madame Meng Wanzhou and our two Michaels. And then particularly the two Michaels, their captivity, all of these things have come together so that the level of public support for engagement has dropped dramatically. Suddenly China is different. Uh, our hopes for China, uh, if, if not destroyed or at least been put on hold, this is a hard moment. And then you get the geopolitical overlay of the United States and some other countries, Australia, uh, to some extent, Japan and the Europeans pushing back against China. And engagement is, as we knew it, even five years ago, is no longer sustainable. And our debate now uh, in, uh, in, in thinking quarters in Canada, is it time for us to join in a new kind of alliance of democracies and the like-minded to push back against China uh, in, uh, in Hong Kong, in Xinjiang, uh, but also to, um, uh, to push back against China in international organizations? Should we ban Huawei uh, uh, and try to move towards decoupling from the Chinese economy? Uh, this China is the biggest economy. We're deeply connected with it. But some argue, and there's a point of view that it is time to pull back from that. To, uh, on the other hand, I would say that the pro-engagement forces have taken a little bit of a different angle. And that angle is, no, we can't be as hopeful as we were. No, we yes, we do need to push back against China. And here's the key. The objective is to keep the doors open as far as possible. Change the philosophy from, living, from uh, uh, changing China to living with China. And you can live with a neighbor next door that you don't like. You're gonna build a higher fence in some respects, but you're also gonna keep a gate open uh, as far as possible for discussions and the good things that can come with an occasional joint barbecue or, or meal together uh, across the way. So engagement to be sustained is gonna to have to change. And that's exactly the challenge before the current Trudeau government, where we're going to go now that the two Michaels issue is more or less resolved, what is our path forward? Is uh, uh, Justin Trudeau going to go the path of his father as he tried to do in his first three years as prime minister? Or has he now toughened his position 
in such a way that Canada-China uh, is, uh, is going to be uh, half adversarial, half cooperative. That's, 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 that's the choice that government faces. Thank you so much for being with us. It's you know really an honor to have one of Canada's top experts on China on the show. And I know our listeners are going to get a lot out of this. So thanks so much for being here. We really appreciate it. Thank you for the opportunity, Connor. Once again, that was Professor Paul Evans at the University of British Columbia. In the second half of this episode, we turn our attention towards the current state of Canada-China relations. Professor Gordon Holden is the Director Emeritus of the China Institute at the University of Alberta, and he joins us today. Professor Holden, thank you for joining us again. I'd like to start with your take on the current state of Canada-China relations. In the past four years, we've seen the arrest of Meng Wanzhou, followed by the subsequent arrests and detentions of Michael Kovrig and Michael Spavor. More broadly, we've also seen issues including the case of the Uyghurs in the Xinjiang province of northwestern China, a more aggressive China in both the Taiwan Straits and South China Sea, and even more recently, the controversy surrounding the upcoming Winter Olympic Games set to be held in Beijing. How do you think Canada should navigate these complex issues, and are there priorities it has in responding to these foreign policy questions? Thank you very much, Thomas, for having me on, the, on your podcast. There are, in my mind, two sets of issues. There are the purely bilateral, or, or largely bilateral, which would inter- certainly include the Michaels, Meng Wanzhou, canola, um, uh, various other trade issues, and involved some other other products. Uh, and then there are the what I would call the multilateral. And by well, that I mean by that I mean issues that we're not the only ones who are particularly concerned with this. Now there were, of course, other countries that helped us with the two Michaels, but when it comes to say human rights issues, Xinjiang. Hong Kong, uh, and issues such as the South China Sea, or even Taiwan, those are issues which are broadly shared amongst Western countries, some feeling, countries feeling more strongly than others. And so I think that they uh, warrant and will need different approaches. When it comes to the question of uh, the substance of the relationship, ironically, the economic and trade relationship is largely intact. Uh, trade is still buoyant. Um, we remain considerably dependent on Chinese exports, our imports for a wide range of consumer goods, particularly important now that inflation is an issue because China tends to deliver products of decent quality at decent prices. And in terms of PPE, for example, during this ongoing, never ending, it seems, COVID pandemic, while we were 70% dependent on Chinese PPE at the beginning, in those periods such as March, April of 2020, we still import about 40% of our PPE from China. And that's because the prices are good, the delivery is consistent, et cetera. So the, it's a complex web of interdependence uh, where the political dim- diplomatic dimensions are as bad perhaps as they've ever been. Um, while on the other hand, there's still a considerable amount of economic substance although at a rate of dependency, economic dependency, that's very low by the, say, the standards of Australia, um, New Zealand, and even lower than that in the United States. I want to follow up on the question of trade, which seems to have been largely protected from these disputes. How important is trade to the Canada-China relationship? And do you think maintaining these strong economic ties is sustainable given the current political and frankly fraught context? 
Well, it would be wrong to say, and as you hinted at the beginning, to say that the trade has been completely divorced from the political issues, uh, such as as the restrictions on Canadian canola, et cetera. Although if you dig deeper into that, and the uh, Chinese Institute has done so with an occasional paper put out uh, last year, the Chinese choice of targets, in this case, canola, was not accidental. They have their own domestic producers who were suffering. And so it maybe was convenient for them to target um, canola. In the case of Australia, when they wanted to retaliate against Australia, they didn't pick iron ore, of which they are heavily dependent on Australian iron ore exports, they chose, at least at the beginning, Australian wine, which is available for many other options, particularly Europe, even the United States, New Zealand, et cetera. So there's a, uh, even on the trade side, there's a, a political dimension woven in. I'm confident that barring a rapid and further deterioration of the relationship between China and the West, which is not impossible, but not necessarily likely in the short term, that that economic relationship will continue to grow. And here's the reason. While China's growth rates have dropped significantly over the past few years, their growth rates are still very healthy uh, by Western standards, far above the expansion rates for, um, in general, for Europe or for North America. Uh, China's economy is still expanding. It will presumably in this decade pass the United States economy on nominal GDP basis. It's already larger than the US economy if you go by purchasing power parity. It's conceivable looking into future decades that the Chinese economy could, and this is a big if because the future is of course impossible to know now, uh, that it could be twice the size of the US economy. So I think that the prospects for growth are there. The two economies are highly complementary. The things that we produce, China is often short of, doesn't mean they don't have it but they need more canola. They need beef and pork, particularly pork, given that their herd was devastated by the swine fever epidemic. They need coal, they need iron ore, which we also still send them. They particularly need potash, we're a big exporter. They love seafood from our maritime provinces. And for us, there's no other country that provides such low cost across the range of manufactured products. Um, we import more, of course, in the United States, but we import a huge amount from China, textiles, clothing, uh, computers, um, all sorts of manufactured items, the full range, and often inputs to our own manufacturers have a Chinese component, including automobiles. Um, Magna has many factories in China, for example, producing auto parts. So that intertwining of the two economies, while not nearly as thorough as in the United States, China, in my view, and certainly far short of the interdependence of Australia and China is still considerable and unlikely to wither barring some really traumatic events that would infect probably the West more broadly and not just Canada. And so another aspect that's making Canada-China relations difficult seems to be a shifting public opinion. Recent surveys have shown that Canadians are increasingly becoming more concerned with China's actions both within China and abroad. What effect does the souring of Canadian public opinion have on the Canadian government's policy towards China? I think it does shape policy. It's not the only determinant, but it's very hard. It became impossible, quite frankly, um, in 2018, after the detention of the two Michaels, to even contemplate the possibility of negotiating a free trade agreement. 
And now, of course, we've got a new trade agreement in the United States that has a clause that more or less makes that a, a dead letter. That is a free trade agreement with a, a non-market economy as defined in that trade agreement. So I think there's a whole range of positive initiatives that just don't work. I think also difficult would be high-level visits, particularly incoming to Canada. You can be guaranteed there would be demonstrations, a lot of them. There would be harsh media criticism, which happens already. Uh, so without that sort of lifeblood of back and forth of ministers and, and political leaders, I mean, normally the governor general would have already been, um, would have been the new governor general, it would be a planned trip to China. Uh, previous governor generals went, going back a very long time. That's unthinkable. The idea that Xi Jinping would stop in Canada on his way to the UN, which has happened in the past, um, or that Chinese leader would combine a trip to the United States with a trip to Canada, um, that's also hard to imagine. So I think there are some real limitations on what can be done. It doesn't seem to affect the broader trade relationship, but it puts a real break on new initiatives and on the things that in the past sustained a more robust diplomatic relationship. Uh, the, the government can read the polls. The polls are uniformly negative, strongly negative. And in that environment, uh, it's very difficult, if not impossible, for any political leader um, of any party to put their head up and say, I'd like to see a closer relationship with China. That's just not going to happen in the short to medium term, in my view. And so another hurdle that actually might affect Canada-China relations are the upcoming Beijing Olympic Games that are set to begin in two weeks. And as you know, Canada has joined some of its allies in announcing a diplomatic boycott of these games. How significant do you think this boycott is for China? Do you think it's a proportionate response by Canada? And are there other ways Canada could signal its disapproval of China's actions both within China and abroad? Well, the Olympics is a, a, ter- a, a difficult target. In theory, of course, we're going right back to the original Olympic Games in, in Greece, the idea of the Olympics is a period where even warring states or countries that were rivals uh, would put aside their differences to compete. And so there is that element of, and certainly the reborn modern Olympics had the same concept uh, in, the, um, uh, in the 19th century of uh, when they were reborn out of France, um, that this would be a period where di- dish nations would put aside their differences. Hasn't quite worked out that way. There've been several boycotts, Moscow, Los Angeles, the Soviet Union. Um, Canada's own Olympics in Montreal were boycotted by a great number of African countries because uh, we had refused to bar New Zealand from the Montreal Olympics because of a dispute regarding apartheid and the fact that New Zealand teams had visited South Africa. It's an aside. So the idea that you could take politics out completely hasn't really worked. On the other hand, the, there's lots of things that Canada can use to protest. Uh, the Olympics is really the best one. Quite early on in 2021, it became clear to me that the US government was not going to boycott the games completely as in um, they'd had lots of opportunity. I think they came to the conclusion and I haven't spoken, I can guarantee you to the White House on this, but I think they came to the conclusion that this would be a big black eye for China, which would worsen the relationship, raise tensions, um, give China furious, but not necessarily make any difference on the ground be it Hong Kong, Xinjiang, et cetera. It'd be a means of protest. Uh, they chose to step back from that. So the compromise, the diplomatic boycott, wasn't really do that much. Normally countries might send 
I suppose kind of conceivably could have said the governor general, more likely just a minister uh, who'd attend and a few other officials, um, maybe a parliamentary delegation. It wouldn't have been that much. The Chinese still don't like it because they see it as a, as a calculated insult. Uh, it's certainly a calculated snub. Uh, so uh, the ideas of to go more, to do more than that, you'd have to, in effect, not send athletes. Then you come back to the question, is this a useful thing? Uh, for Canada, Winter Olympics are very important. We tend to do really well. These athletes have trained for years and years and years, some of them virtually their whole lives um, in preparation. Um, is it a good thing? And should everything revolve around the human rights issue in China or should the athletes go? And I think most Western countries um, uh, have said, no, we're going. And particularly the key winter states, um, the Germany, the Switzerland, the Nordic countries, United States, Canada, Japan, uh, the country, Korea, that have strong winter teams, they're all going to be there. And I think the Olympic game will come and go. Hopefully it'll be a success in the sense of our athletes do well. There will be no shortage of ways to express displeasure with China uh, going forward. I want to turn next to talking more about the future of Canada-China relations. And to begin, let's talk about the role and importance of Canada's representative to China. Recently, it's been some debate as to who the Prime Minister should appoint to succeed Canada's outgoing ambassador, Dominic Barton. Do you think the next ambassador to China should be another political appointment like Barton, or should they be a more seasoned career diplomat? Well, this is a controversial issue. Of course, I was for three decades a career foreign service officer, so I've got a deep bias in favor of career officers versus political appointees, particularly when the political appointee is someone who has been a party bagman or someone who has no particular foreign affairs expertise. And I think one could argue, I don't mean to cast stones, but that Ambassador McCallum was not a great success because he was offside from the prime minister's office and from the prime minister himself. That's never a place you want to be, whether a career or, uh, or, or political appointee. Um, many might not agree with me, but I thought Ambassador Barton um, did a good job. He was um, knowledgeable about China, had lived in Hong Kong, had worked on China's issues directly with Chinese government, had quite frankly better contacts as a McKinsey principal than he did as a Canadian ambassador. I mean, he dealt with Liu He, vice premier, um, a standing program member on a regular basis when he was with McKinsey. I think he came with some talents. And of course, the embassy and the consulates general are far more than just the ambassador. I know the principal officers of all of those missions, and they are capable and sound. Whoever you send doesn't do it on their own. They do it with um, the support of their team. And the, the political line comes from Ottawa. No matter how powerful the ambassador is, uh, they get their instructions from Ottawa. That will not change, whether it's from Global Affairs Canada or from the Prime Minister's office or Privy Council office. Uh, they don't set the tone. It may be true. The opposite might be true if you're in Sri Lanka or in um, Belgium. But when it comes to a country such as the importance of China, those instructions are going to be fine-tuned and out of Ottawa. You still want someone who has clout and has good access. So I, I'm on the fence as to whether that person should be a career person or a um, political officer, political person. We have a one big problem, uh, which I've complained about for decades, and not just because I am a China hand, but we had been, the government, very slow at promoting and cultivating sufficient numbers of China experts, and quite frankly, I think even within the political class, that is political parties, there's a dearth of expertise on China. 
So whether you're talking about senior levels of Global Affairs Canada or Prime Minister's office, there's not a thicket of people who are highly knowledgeable of China or who speak Chinese or know the country well. Well, that creates a problem on both sides. We do have middling level officers, some now getting about to their level where they could be appointed as ambassador, but that's not a, it's not a long list. And I think that's one of the reasons why it may take a while. I would not be surprised if a new person's not on the ground until closer to the summer. Uh, I think the position should be filled and the expectations of that person should be toned down. The idea that we're gonna send some miracle worker to China who's suddenly gonna give us the magic keys that, uh, or algorithms that allow us to improve China's human rights record or somehow um, mend the bilateral relationship. That's just not the case. It's beyond the capacity of any one woman or man to do so. This is gonna take time. And even with time, uh, it won't be easy. And the United States could not influence the outcome of the Chinese Civil War at a time when America stood alone after 1945 as the most powerful country on earth. Um, they tilted, attempted to influence the outcome of that civil war and failed. And subsequently, um, I do not believe that any external power has been able to fundamentally influence or set, they set the path of Chinese uh, evolution and change. So humbleness and a measure of reasonableness in terms of expectations, modest expectations is an order. Whoever we send, people in Canada will probably be disappointed because nothing will get fixed instantly and nothing will get fixed to the satisfaction of most Canadian media or, or observers, Canadian observers of China. And so in addition to a new ambassador to China, the Canadian government's also expected to announce soon an updated strategy on the Indo-Pacific. And when we last talked to you in November, you mentioned that this pivoting could serve as a broader Asia strategy and in turn shift away attention from just China. But given the current and heightened tensions with China, do you think this is a strategic move by the government? Or should there also be a clear white paper, if not positioned towards China? You raise a very good question. Of course, I'm answering a hypothetical because I haven't read the, the new strategy and no one outside of government has done so as well, as far as I'm, as far as I'm concerned. Closer attention to other parts of Asia is something that is highly desirable. Various governments going back decades have tried to do that, but it's been very much a hit or miss, stop, go. I've participated directly in some of these efforts to be part of a broader Asian strategy. What usually happens is that the government loses interest. Uh, the business community stays steady with their interest in the US market or European markets, and the Canadian public has only tangential interest. Universities don't teach enough Asian languages or studies, and it tends to, to be a policy announcement, which tends to gather dust over time. So I'm a little bit skeptical, but I'm in favor of doing it, absolutely. Um, but if we think that developing a Indo-Pacific strategy will be easy, think again. India is a very large, prickly, very independent country. Uh, it's not going to be play second fiddle even to the United States with an Indo-Pacific strategy. The more that India feels threatened by China, the more they'll want to play, uh, but they'll want to be playing by Indian rules, or at least they'll want to be doing, uh, conducting actions that they feel are in their interest. And our own relationship with India has been plagued with difficulties. The nuclear issue, uh, which goes back decades, or our providing of 
nuclear systems to India, which they then used to assist them in developing a nuclear weapon. The issue of Sikh separatism has been an issue traditionally, and even still, the issue of what China view, what India views as hostility towards um, India generated by the portions of the Indian community in Canada, particularly Sikhs in Canada, is problematic. Um, I've spoken to many of our council, of our high commissioners to India, and that issue just doesn't tend, tends not to go away. Um, so that's a problem right there. For, for Southeast Asia, there's lots of potential, but we have been again, on again, off again, in terms of developing a strategy with ASEAN. <clears throat> we get a free trade agreement, that'd be great. Those tend to take years. Uh, and a challenge we'll have is that the ASEAN countries, with the exception, I believe, of Brunei, all have China as a principal economic partner, their principal economic partner. So uh, the idea that we suddenly appear with a small percentage of our exports and of theirs intertwined, um, uh, that is, will be a reality. And quite frankly, many of these ASEAN countries are now becoming enmeshed in Chinese supply chains. So can any company that wants to say make auto parts in Malaysia or wants to uh, have a, a manufacturing base in India may well find that they're still drawn into a Chinese macroeconomic reality. In the case of Korea and Japan, those two countries have a measure of mistrust towards China and would love to have a greater diversity, stronger economic relationship with China. But already um, uh, in the case of Japan, the CPTPP, we have a, a privileged access to the Japanese markets. So that's not something we really need. For Korea, we have a bilateral trade agreement. Um, so I'm not sure on the trade side that you're going to see like a revolution overnight. I don't think you will. On the security side, well, I think one will be one dimension in the Indo-Pacific strategy. Uh, there is more that can be done, but we are already building some ties to that regard with both Japan and Korea. Um, uh, more could be done perhaps with Australia. With India, it would be difficult. And with ASEAN, their main view, I think I speak in generalities here, the possible exception of Philippines, they really don't want to be forced to choose between China and the United States. They want to stay on the fence in security terms. Some of them, particularly say Singapore and Philippines, uh, really much wanting America to be engaged in security matters in the region. The others I think do as well, although they're not always prepared to say it out loud, uh, but they really don't want to be, in any of them in my view, part of a US-led security arrangement such as occurred after the uh, Second World War or during the Cold War in particular. Um, so that relationship can be built, but that's something relationship with other parts of Asia that need to be done uh, over a period of a decade or longer. Uh, you can announce the policy in 2022, but I think if you look at it a year later, uh, the achievements both in economic and security teams will, terms will still be modest. We should do it, yes, but keep our expectations modest and don't start to believe our own propaganda. Okay, last question. I'm wondering how you view the future of Canada-China relations and what's next on the broader horizon. Do you find yourself hopeful? Well, history is a long time. And we've had 51 years of relations with, with China. Um, there have been ups and downs. At the beginning, uh, there was very little substance. It was very correct, very positive, but with virtually no substance. Gradually over time, particularly after Deng Xiaoping came to power, the Chinese economy began to open after 1978. 
Um, under Deng's leadership, the economic substance began to grow and multiply decade after decade of substantively. Uh, China was always and is still an authoritarian government with a dodgy human rights record. I don't think that's something that's begun with Xi Jinping. Um, I do believe that China now has a more muscular um, foreign policy, a more muscular domestic policy, but it's not one that's radically different in my view from that which was before. It's more that China now has tools at its disposal internally in terms of surveillance, but also externally in terms of just greater economic clout, military clout, political clout. Uh, those are factors that aren't really uh, dictated in any way by the Canada-China relationship. But if we have a China which is going to be very prominent, share the United States and probably with Europe, um, three poles of global leadership, um, to not have a relationship with China or to have one that's based entirely on hostility is, is problematic. It's 20% of the world's population. Uh, they will be active and we are more trade dependent than any G7 country along with Germany um, in a unique situation. Uh, in that regard, far more trade dependent than the United States and most of NATO. So for us to cut out or to ignore the economic prospects for trade with China, particularly for Western Canada, that would be a considerable cost. So I'd, I'd argue we need to look to our economic ties. We need to be tend, of course, above all else to our relationship with the United States, but to not be, in my view, just captured in the orbit of of US-China policy. We need an independent policy that takes into account US policy, but it is a policy that's forged in Ottawa, not in Washington. Professor Holden, thanks again for taking the time to speak with us. And thank you so much for another great and insightful discussion. Oh, it's a great pleasure. Thank you so much for including me. Once again, that was Professor Gordon Holden of the China Institute. You've been listening to Beyond the Headlines on CIUT 89.5 FM. Many thanks to our guests, Professor Paul Evans and Professor Gordon Holden for joining us to discuss Canada-China relations. Today's show is produced by Connor Fraser and Thomas Chan. The views expressed on this show do not necessarily reflect the views of the producers, CIUT, or the Monk School of Global Affairs and Public Policy. If you missed any part of the show, be sure to check out the podcasts of all our episodes on our website at beyondtheheadlines.net. You can also find them on Spotify as well as Apple Podcasts. If you're a fan of our show or want to stay up to date with policy issues in Canada, follow us on Twitter at BYOND underscore headlines. You can also check us out on Facebook and Instagram. Be sure to tune in next week as we continue to take public policy discussions out of the hallways and onto the airwaves.